invite you to turn with me to the scripture reading passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if I could get the congregation lights uh, turned up so I can see them. <laughs> there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me just say, even though we're not in the book of Job, we're going to be thinking about the same theme of facing trials and hardships. And I can say two things about that. First of all, no one passage, no one sermon, in the way not even one book can say everything that the Bible says about this really important life-related theme, about how we interpret the experience of hardships and trials. No one message can do that, and no one book and no one passage. But the second thing I want to say too, and this dawned on me recently as I was interacting with someone who had lost their spouse in an untimely way, and she was wrestling with the why questions and what does it mean and what is God doing, and that is entirely natural. And the Bible has important things to say about that, and Proof of it is I'm going to try to share some of those this morning in this message. But it dawned on me as I spoke with her that we shouldn't get faked out into thinking if some pastor or some Christian friend or some book I could read or some podcast I could listen to would just explain this all to me, then it would take away the trouble. Then it would take away the pain, I should say. Then it would take away the hurt. And it dawned on me, that's not true, is it? If you have the deepest wisdom that the Bible gives about why trials come and why hardships happen, he's still gone. And you'll still miss him. Or you may still have the cancer, and it may still have the same prognosis. So, so much of this is about expectation. And one of the things I think we just need to embrace, as hard as it is, is that we live on a fallen, sin-cursed planet where later the book of Job will say, troubles come like the sparks fly upward. It's just inevitable. Around the globe and throughout history, most human beings suffer deeply so much of the time. They're hungry. They're starving. There's war going on. There's disease ravaging their neighborhood and their experience. And I think somehow, especially in the West, with the sort of unusual prosperity that we've had, we've somehow forgotten that we're in the wilderness, we're in a place where we're very vulnerable to the ravages of the curses of sin. And God had said, don't eat of that fruit, don't disobey me, don't revel re revolt against me. Because in the day you do that, to paraphrase a little bit, the day you do that, death will enter in. And the futility and the frustration and the corruption of everything that Romans 8 describes. Well, we did rebel. We did revolt. We did 
disobey in Adam and Eve. And now, as a human race, we continue to suffer the consequences until the time when God, out of extraordinary grace that cost him his own dearly loved son, is going to make us new, to make everything new, and to bring us to a place where there's no more curse and no more consequences. But in the meantime, realize we live in a world that's full of hardship and trouble. So at least we shouldn't be totally surprised and caught off guard. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, with the people right on the verge of entering the promised land, which will still, it's not the land of rest completely yet, because there are enemies and battles to be fought. But right on the verge of entering Canaan, Moses is speaking to the people, and he's rehearsing with them, importantly, their history with God so far, to prepare them to go on and to continue. And to me, this is one of the most important and fascinating and illuminating passages in all the Bible about the experience of hardship and what it means and what it can do in our lives. And so again, even though it was read as a scripture, just to start into the passage, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live, so that you may thrive and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God, literally Yahweh your God, led you all the way in the wilderness those 40 years. And that reminds us, he's leading all the way. Some of our best hymns and gospel songs remind us of that. Every day, he's the one who's ultimately leading. It's never random for us. It's never random ultimately for anyone, but especially for God's people. He led you all that way in the wilderness. Part of the thing is that we sometimes think that life is just random and chaotic. And something got to us that wasn't supposed to. But ultimately, it's God's all-encompassing and meticulous providence and ultimate control. Job said that we've already seen in just unmistakable ways. The Lord gave, we all acknowledge and say that, but the parallel is what? The Lord has taken away. Exact same action described. And then later in chapter 2, shall we accept good from God and not trouble, not adversity? And clearly it's implying that comes from God through the mystery of providence now that we live in a fallen world. What was God up to all that time as he led them every day, every time in the wilderness? He was leading them, it says, with this purpose, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Honestly, this morning, 
How are you doing in your relationship to the Lord? How are you doing spiritually? We get so busy, we never hardly pause to really reflect on those things, to really ask. And we all know if we're church-going people, sort of the polite answers to that. And so we all, and believe me as a pastor, maybe you face an extra, you're going to keep up appearances, and you're going to keep kind of going through the motions, and, and not even as some kind of terrible hypocrisy you just sort of know what's expected by now as long as you've been a believer so you keep showing up and you keep kind of pitching in and you keep kind of making an effort when it comes to devotions and those kinds of things but how often do we really where am I really in the relationship with the Lord that I profess to believe in where am I in my heart. And that's what the hardships was intended to reveal. To humble you and to test you in order to know not how things were on the surface, but how it was in your heart. And of course we know God, the omniscient, the all-knowing, he ultimately knows all the time what's in our heart. This is one of those beautiful ways that God kind of condescends. What he's really saying, of course, is you need to know what's in your heart. Not again, just on the surface. You need to know where your heart really is in terms of your relationship to God. Because the Bible word heart means way more than just the emotions. It means our mind, our thinking. It means the center of our valuing. What do we love the most? What do we regard most highly? It is the center, too, of our emotions, our longings, our desirings. What is the real condition of our heart? And this passage is saying, and if you think about it, it's true. There's nothing like trouble to kind of show where your heart really is. For one thing, it shows what you really care about. If something happens to something you don't care much about, or it, uh, you know, it's threatened, you, it doesn't agitate you, it doesn't depress you, because your heart's not set on that. But if something you really care about is threatened and made vulnerable, then the anxiety, the agitation comes. So trials, hardships, they're this cardiac CAT scan of our soul to show why are you that agitated? And why is this causing you that anxiety? What is it that you really love the most? And I know in my own life and frankly from watching as a pastor in the life and just as a friend too and a counselor sometimes in the lives of others the presenting problem often when someone says, Pastor, come and help me fix this, you can tell fairly soon in that while they may say the problem is this, there are deeper problems, heart problems. They've set their affections on idols that are more important. And when that starts to be laid bare and stripped away, it shows what's in our heart 
But it's crucial that we figure that out, right? We don't want to be faked out about that. We don't want to think, I love God more than anyone or anything else like the Bible calls me to, and that not really be the case. Hardships. Get at that and probe and explore that. In order to know what was in your heart, and this specifically about that, whether or not you would keep his commands. Same issue for Adam and Eve. He said, don't eat of the fruit. Satan gave them alternative interpretation of the fruit. Said something else would happen if they ate of it. Than what Yahweh said would happen. And now they were left. Whether or not you would obey his commands. If you trust him. If you believe him. Including, and this in so many ways is the crucial thing. If you trust God to do you good. If you'll stick to his way, his plans, you'll obey him. But if like Adam and Eve, once Satan had insinuated the doubt, he's holding out on you. And if you stick to his way and keep obeying his commands, you're not going to get to what I can promise you. You'll be like God's. Whether or not we obey his commands shows whether or not we trust him. That's why it's so crucial. That's why it's so revelatory. And Adam and Eve, of course, what? They didn't obey his commands. Why? They did not ultimately believe that God would do them good. So they had to go elsewhere. That whole temptation gets replicated in Jesus' experience, ironically, in the wilderness. And God has just declared concerning Jesus in the waters of baptism, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's God's word about Jesus. But then the Holy Spirit, again, just like Yahweh drove Israel into the wilderness, then the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And what does he hear? The accuser, the tempter, says, if you are the Son of God... The baptismal pronouncement just said that he was and dearly loved. Satan says, wait a minute. If that's true, and then the temptations, and then the tests. But Jesus resists. Jesus, quoting scripture again and again, gives the true interpretation of everything that Satan tries to confuse and he obeys because Jesus believes that even though it is going to make mean for him eventually horrible hardship, that ultimately God is going to do him good and do good through him. And God is going to bring him to that ultimate full and final happiness and only God, God and God's way can get him there and so he keeps obeying. And it gets harder and harder for Jesus until we get all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane 
where the beloved Son of God, who has had interrupted fellowship, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit since eternity, is so shaken by the hardship, by the trial, that God's plan and path has for him, that even Jesus, the dearly loved Son, says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. I want to say too, just a moment, another reality check. <clears throat> there can be times when I know what God's will is for me. I know what God's plan is for me. And I know that he's going to bring good out of it. I believe all those things. And it still will feel horrible and dreadful even as it did for Jesus. But remember the outcome for Jesus. Because he became obedient to death, therefore God exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that at the name given to Jesus every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and not just for him, but for all the redeemed. And his suffering, that hardship, brought him to that ultimate and final good. Isaiah says he'll see the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. He'll say it was worth it. I've redeemed all the ones that I love and I'm going to renew the entire cosmos and there won't be any more sin or curse or sorrow anymore. That's the pattern for Jesus and that's the pattern for everyone who will stick to following the way he did as the author and finisher of our faith. And so back to the experience of Israel. Verse 3, he was the one who humbled you. It wasn't random. In the midst of the mystery of providence, and I keep saying mystery because that's what it includes, he caused you to hunger and then fed you with manna. Remember, both happened. He brought you into the trial, but he also brought you out of it and made provision for it. Maybe not the provision you wanted. Eventually you're like, ugh, manna again. But still, he made the provision. What was the purpose this time? Or said in a way, a different way. To teach you that a human being can't live only on bread. A human being has got to learn to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're not just a body. You're a soul. You're a spirit. You were made, you were designed to relate to God, to engage with God. So you better find out, and I better find out, how to just uh, fulfill my physical appetites. I better find out, how do I fulfill my spiritual longings? And the only way to do that is to learn from and to live by Every word that comes from the mouth of God, when the Bible teaches you something, you believe it. When the Bible promises something, you trust in it. When the Bible warns you about something, you go away from it. And when the Bible commands you about something, you put it into practice. That's what it means to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then verse 4 is kind of interesting to me. Because Spurgeon says something like, we experience a tiny fraction of the things that we're actually afraid is going to happen to us. 
I am a classic warrior. And with an analytical mind, you can just spot all the scenarios where things are just going to fall apart. And so many of the time, they don't come true. We get defeated and agitated by things that never, ever actually happen. Your clothes actually all that time in the wilderness didn't wear out. Your feet didn't even swell during those 40 years. And then he interprets again. Know then, realize, verse 5, and realize it where? Not in just some superficial understanding that you have of these things so that you can get a right answer in a Bible class about them. Know these realities in your heart. That as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. Or as another translation puts it, that the Lord your God has been disciplining, that is, not punishing in every instance at all. The word there means child rearing, child training. Interpret your circumstances that way, says Moses. Yahweh, through those wilderness tests and trials, has been growing you up, has been training you, just as a man trains his son. Hebrews talks about that. Of course, a loving father trains his son and his daughter. He doesn't leave them immature and vulnerable and weak. They give them tests, not more that they can bear ultimately with their help, but they test them. They don't just give in to the child's tantrums and will. That's the better model, this passage says. The Lord is growing you up in what you experience. The character of Christ, being committed to the things of Christ that matter most, more than the things of this fleeting, fallen, on the way out world. You don't want to stay an immature Christian, maybe a real Christian, but so attached only to the things of this world while huge needs surround us and our lives are just dominated by lesser things. The Lord is growing you up. He's giving you more and more of the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things that can happen that hardships can be the catalyst for if we rightly respond to them by trusting in what God's up, God is up to and what he's doing. I want to say how crucial this is because I know from experience, if you interpret your hardships and trials in some other unbelieving way, even if like me, you kind of repress it. You don't really look it square in the face. But if you interpret it in some way like, God's abandoning me. God is punishing me. God is not for me. If that becomes the default way that you experience something, it will have toxic effects in your life. And I really wrestled, I shared a staff retreat recently about something that happened in my own life. I don't like to over-personalize things for one thing. About how much to say about 
the one thing that hit me hardest in my life. And I, I'll just say, I guess, just a little bit about it. But when I was a little kid, and after my parents, you know, it was just a really challenging, they fought all the time kind of thing, or that's the way it seemed. And just more and more, I dreaded the prospect of their getting a divorce. For me, that would have just been, and in many ways turned out to be, but it just would have been just ruining of my world, of my life. We were an occasionally church-going family, and so I knew enough about God to hold him responsible for things and to know that he was sort of in control of things. And so we lived in the country at the time, and I remember out in a field where no one else could hear me. I begged. I pleaded with him. Don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. I don't remember how many times, but I remember <laughs> the intensity of it. And then eventually, it happened. And I remember back out in the field, and this isn't good. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh boy, great authenticity or something. This is not good what I'm about to say. But I just cried out to God, I hate you. Because the one thing I wanted most, and you wouldn't do it, and you could have. Let's face it, he's almighty. When we've wrestled all that we've wrestled about predestination and sovereignty and all of those things, one of our most fundamental affirmations is, I believe in God the Father almighty. He's all-powerful. Nothing ultimately happens that he doesn't permit. He could have stopped it. That's what almighty means. And so, the resentment, the bitterness towards God for letting that happen seeped into my soul in kind of repressed and subconscious and subterranean ways. And to be honest, it's only been recently, and this is decades later, that I've realized the corrosive effect that that's had on my relationship to God. Because deep, deep down, there's this unbelief now. I can't trust you to come through for me. And the thing that matters most to me. And so, looking at it now, I realize that Romans 8.28 is still true even for that. And somehow in a way that's largely inscrutable to me, but not entirely, I realize even that he was going to override for good if I would rightly respond to it and learn the lessons of trusting and obeying that he intended. All of that to say, as I run out of time soon, I was unbelieving toward God's goodness in that towards me, but I was wrong. I'm mistaken, and I've got to repent of that misinterpretation of why God did that. It doesn't mean what I thought it meant. It doesn't mean that he had abandoned me. It doesn't mean that he's failed me. All the way in the wilderness, he's working for my good too. And he was in those moments as well. 
That's been liberating to me. Because if I can get that thorn in the flesh out of my way, if I can get that out of my way, I can get back to what really the rest of my experience mostly in life and certainly what the cross of Jesus tells me, God loves me and he's for me and he's always for me and he's always working for my good. And as this passage says, you stick with them and he is going to bring you to that good land. See what it says as this passage uh, continues. He will, he is bringing you into a good land. Verse 9, just to skip all the kind of uh, terms that would have been appropriate to an agrarian culture at the time, but verse 9 climaxes with, and you will lack nothing. And in verse 10, and paraphrase, it will be a land where you'll, be eat, where you'll eat and be satisfied and you will praise Yahweh your God for the good land He's given you. He is going to bring you to that good place. He is going to bring us to that place. And this is utterly undeserved. I have to keep reminding myself that. We sometimes wander around, oh, if I only got what I was entitled to. And we need to remember how terrible that would be. That would be everlasting judgment. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and his atoning work, you're going to get to a glorious, everlastingly happy future. It's going to be a good land. And in that place, you're going to praise Yahweh for bringing you there. And you're going to praise Yahweh for how he got you there too. You'll praise the Lord for those things. It matters. How things are with your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you are flows from it. So I want to ask you again, how are things in your heart toward God? Are you confident? Are you sure that always and only He loves you? He delights in you, and he's working always and only for your good. Do you see why the practical test of what's in your heart and what it means is whether or not you obey his commands? At first that might sound like, well, that sounds kind of legalistic. No, it's revelatory. It's diagnostic. Because this, I'm sure, is how it works. If you really trust him and believe in him, and his goodness to you, you're going to respond in love to him, gratitude to him. And if you love him, really from the heart, you will keep his commands. The sign that I've stopped trusting, that I've gotten jaded, and I may be going through the motions like I said, but my heart is not in it anymore, are the disobeying, the straying away, the indifference to God's command and God's plan and God's purpose in my life. But when I trust, when I believe, I stay attached to Him. I stay clinging to Him. And I stick to His plans, which shows up in keeping His commandments. Peter echoes the same idea when he says, these trials that cause you to suffer grief now 
have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, do you trust God or not? Because that's worth more than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, if you really do, will result in praise and glory and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him, and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. That's what I'm asking you. Do you believe in him? And are you filled with this glorious and inexpressible joy because you're receiving the end result of your faith? Your soul's getting saved. Your heart's getting transformed. That's what we are all aiming for. And then finally, he's going to bring you into a good land. I don't know what you're experiencing. Some of you I do know. What it seems like now in the wilderness, in this hostile, hard place. But the writer reminds, look, he is bringing you to a good place. And so for the last reference that I quote, I want to remind you one more time how it's going to all end up. If you trust him, which will show by obeying him. Because John said he saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea which is a symbol of the chaos that comes from sin. There's no more chaos. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he'll live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and every cause for tears because there won't be any more death or mourning or crying or pain. All that old stuff has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Believer, I don't know what he's orchestrated right now, but I do know why. We've learned something more of why, and I do know how it's going to turn out if you keep trusting and obeying from the heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these people what I pray for myself, that I won't get stuck with just a faith that's only half-hearted, that barely believes the promises and the prospects of what's happening and what's going to happen for your dearly loved children. Give us honesty, I pray, and let us look to our own lives to look for the indicator of obedience that shows Lord, I'm still all in because I believe that you're the only one that can get me to heaven and get me to that full and final happiness. In Jesus' name, amen.